Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join China analyst and author Mark O'Neill to look at the life of Wong Xing, a journalist and diplomat who helped found Tunghua Hospital and was also Hong Kong's second Chinese legislator. Aspects of his life were quite extraordinary. As a teenager, he would head to America for part of his education after beginning his education at a missionary school here. Okay, today we're talking about a man called Wong Xing, and he was a very prominent person in the history of Hong Kong, especially in the printing, publishing, journalism. He was a member of Legco. He was the second Chinese to be a member of Legco. He was a very active member of the Chinese community, one of the directors of the Polongok charity organization. Now his Early life was very extraordinary. He was born into a humble farming family in Xiangshan, which is now Zhongshan, next to Macau. And his father wisely sent him to what was called the Morrison Educational School in Macau. Now, this was set up by a missionary, foreign missionaries. Now, foreign missionaries did not require you to have a lot of money to go to their schools. They would take anybody. So I think Mr. Wong's father was very smart to see this. So his son goes to this school to study in Macau, and the school then moves to Hong Kong. And in 1847, the principal of the school, who's an American missionary called Dr. Brown, tells the students that because of his wife's health, he has to go back to America. However, if they want to come with him to study in America, he will take them and he'll pay them. For two years, and he will pay for the travel. So he asks the students who wants to go with him, and Mr. Wang Xing put up his hand along with two others, which is quite an extraordinary decision, you know, for a teenage Chinese at that time to volunteer to go to this country that none of them had heard about and had never seen, had no idea about. And so the three young boys join Dr. Brown and his wife, and they get on a ship in Guangzhou. And it takes three months via the Cape of Good Hope, and they arrive in New York, and then they go to study in the Monson Academy in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, Wang Xing's health is not good, so after one year, he has to come back to China because of his poor health. However, in that year, he made two great acquisitions. One is he studied English; he was very diligent, so he became fluent in English. And the second was that he was converted to Christianity, and both of these things that he acquired served him very well for the rest of his life. So he comes back to Hong Kong, and he goes to work at the China Mail. This was a newspaper set up by a British man. And in 1850, Wang Xing goes to work for the printing office of the London Missionary Society. Now, this is run by a man called James Legge, who was. The most prominent British sinologist of his time, and this was an excellent job for Wang Xing to have because Dr. Legge was a very eminent person. He was extremely knowledgeable in, in Chinese and in English. He was very literate.、Uh, he knew many people, so it was an ideal place for the young man to start. And he learns how to use the printing machines, and he publishes. Legs translations of Confucian classics into English. He also works sometimes as an interpreter for the Hong Kong government, and he's the first Chinese to appear on the jurors list in 
Because you must remember at that time, the number of Chinese who are fluent in English and are comfortable in this Guaylo environment is very, very few. But because of his experiences in America and then his experiences with the London Missionary Society, Wang Xing is one of these people. So if we can just recap. So Wang Xing starts off from poor background uh, next to Macau, ends up going to this missionary school, so the Morrison School that then transfers over to Hong Kong and uh, then goes to America. And as you say, due to ill health, he doesn't end up finishing his studies. But that's interesting that you say that. I mean, the ill health is not specified, but in fact, he then goes on to live quite a long life. But as you say, he acquires, he's converted to Christianity, which is going to help him in the environment of, of British Hong Kong. And uh, also, he's a fluent English speaker after his experience, so presumably with an American accent. Yes, oh, he would have an uh, American accent. In 1860, he founds the first Chinese newspaper in China because he's got the knowledge and he's got the printing expertise, which he's learned at the, at the printing press. So he found this in Hong Kong? Yes. And, yes. and what was it called? It's called the Zhongwai Xinbao, the Chinese and Foreign news Newspaper. And what was its audience? I mean, did people, did your average Hong Konger read a newspaper where people literate? Uh, the audience would be small because the number of literate Chinese would be small. But they were a very important group in Hong Kong because they would be the intellectuals, the teachers, the business people, and they wanted to have uh, news. And there were English newspapers at the time, so of course it's quite right that there should be Chinese newspapers. So this was another thing in which Ms. Mr. Wong Xing was, was a pioneer. Now, he also interested himself in the modernization of China. So he and one of his colleagues, they translated into Chinese articles about how to make firearms. And they gave this article to a man called Li Hongzhang, who is one of the key people in Beijing in what we call the self-strengthening movement. And he belonged to a group of reformists within the Qing government who realized how backward China was and that China had to move very quickly if it was to avoid being taken over as a colony. So what period is this? So this is 1863. So Mr. Li Hongzhang reads this article extremely carefully, and it's the basis for him to found what's called the Jiangnan Arsenal in Shanghai, which was the first armaments factory in China. And Mr. Li very much values Mr. Wang Sheng, and he invites him to come to Shanghai, and he spends some time teaching English at an official language school that Mr. Li has set up because he realizes he's got to have some Chinese people who are literate in English. Mr. Wang Xing comes back to Hong Kong. He's one of the founding directors of the Tonghua Hospital in 1870, which is a very important medical institution in Chinese history. Prior to that, there's very little organized health care for Chinese in Hong Kong. I mean, a lot of people were just on the streets when they were ill. Oh, yes, and the main form of care was Chinese medicine. So you go to see an individual Chinese medical doctor. So, again, this is something which Wong Xing thought he had to do, which he had to bring his knowledge of Western medicine and Western hospitals to Hong Kong and set one up here and assist the Hong Kong people. So this is an important contribution to Hong Kong. 
Now, in 1873, Dr. James Legge, who was this very distinguished sinologist whom Wang Xing was working for, he left Hong Kong, and this printing office that he had set up was then disbanded. So what Wang Xing does is he takes half of the equipment and he sets up his own printing company, and then he takes the rest of the equipment to Beijing and sets up a printing shop there which is then used by Mr. Li Hongzhang for his self-strengthening efforts. That is to say, they, they print material related to scientific, technical, modern things from the West and translate them into Chinese. So that was a very good uh, contribution. These are all patriotic people, and they wanted to strengthen their country. And so this is what they did. But then they decided that the government in place was not going to do it and was going to resist their efforts at modernization, and that reform of the Qing dynasty was impossible. So, in the case of Dr. Sun, for example, he wrote a very long memorial to the, the emperor, outlining what he thinks China needed to do to reform itself. And he sent this off, and he received no answer. And it was after that that Dr. Sun decided that, that reform was impossible. But uh, Wang Xing is, I mean, he's decades earlier, isn't he? Yeah, well, with Mr. Wong, we're earlier in the process, and he's still, he's still aligned to the, the um, self-strengthening movement. So they're still working on the assumption that the Qing dynasty can be reformed. And uh, this brings us to the next thing he did, which is that um, uh, the Qing government decided to send groups of young Chinese students to America for secondary school and then university uh, as uh, the quickest way to educate young people rather than doing all this in China. So uh, Wang Xing was given the job of escorting 28 of these students to uh, New England and putting them into schools in New England and overseeing their settling down there. Then he became the translator at the Chinese legation in Washington, and then he became the vice consul in San Francisco. So this is him now in, an, in a new role. He's now a diplomat. Yes. And again, China had very few people at that time with these skill sets that were bilingual, that could operate easily in the Chinese world and in, in the foreign world, who could deal easily with Americans face-to-face, -face, not feel inferior. So he plays an important role in the modernization efforts. The reason why he then translates the piece about how to make a gun uh, in order to create the armaments factory, to what end are those armaments being created? Well, as you know, at that time, all over China, there are these foreign concessions and the Chinese military is extremely weak. And in any military confrontation, China will lose against Britain, against France, against the United States. So it's absolutely critical for China to develop its own armaments industry or to buy armaments from abroad so at least it can have military parity with these foreign powers. Otherwise, there can be no quality of relations with them and China will be forced to give way to any demands that the foreigners have. So uh, I think it's quite appropriate 
that you've got to develop China's military in order to get equality with the foreign powers. I'm talking with author and China analyst Mark O'Neill about the life of Wang Xing. Wang Xing was our second Chinese legislator in Hong Kong, but he did many other things. He worked at the Chinese legation, as we're just hearing, in Washington and uh, took students to America, where he, in fact, was educated or partially educated himself for two years. Um, so he was a fluent English speaker. He was also a converted Christian from going to the Morrison Missionary School in Macau and then in Hong Kong. He studied under the eminent Sinologist James Legg, who we're hearing about from Mark. Now, along with Wang Xing, who is mentioned in your book, you, you actually look at what are, what you regard as the 12 sons of, of helping to, to change China. So this is a book you wrote, The Second Tang Dynasty, The 12 Sons of Fragrant Mountain Who Changed China. And a lot of these were incredible young men who, who go off, uh, some go off to, to America to be educated and then really are in eminent positions. So if you'd like to read that, that's the Second Tang Dynasty, The Twelve Sons of Fragrant Mountain Who Changed China, and that's by Mark O'Neill. Now, Wang Xing gets mentioned in that book, but yeah, I mean, he is, he really does seem to grab his opportunities. He seems to be a very outward-looking young man. Yes, and uh, he could have come back to Hong Kong with his gifts, he could have become a rich and prosperous businessman. He could have owned lots of property. He could have had a very comfortable life here. But no, he decided to de dedicate a lot of his time to improving China and assisting young Chinese people with their education, taking them to America, working as a diplomat for China and the United States. So I think he's a very patriotic person. Um, who made the best use of his talents at the time when these talents were very rare among Chinese. So you say he took a group of students to America uh, and then returned? Yes, so he, he does his two stints in America, at in Washington and then San Francisco. Ah, yes, and then you were saying about how he joins the Chinese legation in Washington. So what year are we talking there? So 1878, he's the chief translator at the Chinese legation in Washington. 1879, he's the vice consul in San Francisco. And then 1881, he comes back to Hong Kong and decides that he's going to settle down here. He's not going to work anymore as a diplomat. So the next stage in his life is that uh, he becomes a member of LegCo. Now, as you know, at that time... <laughs> There were very few Chinese people in LegCo. He was only the second one, and he replaced one who had left. So at any one time, there was only one member. And to become a me member of LegCo, you had to fulfill several conditions, which ruled out the vast majority of the Hong Kong population. So you had to be a UK citizen. You had to speak fluent English. You had to have the appropriate social and cultural level and you had to be male. So, of course, that ruled out most Hong Kong people. So he was given British nationality, and then he became one of five unofficial members of LegCo. Now, remember, there were 12 people in LegCo altogether. He's the only Chinese. There were 12? There were 12. And what have we got now? About 70, I think, yes. Yes, so I think it's a pretty uncomfortable position for him. I mean, he's very sophisticated, he's been abroad, you know, he's, he's had a lot of experience of dealing with foreigners and so forth. But here you are, just one Chinese, and the other 11 are all 
uh, British, and they belong to this small colonial elite that runs Hong Kong. So actually his five-year term in LegCo was quite uneventful. He very much supported the government motions, and some of the Chinese in Hong Kong were critical of him. Because what's the point of having a Chinese in LegCo if he supports the government? He should be someone who speaks out against things which Chinese people feel are not in their interests. I can't really explain why Wong Xing was like that. Perhaps he was toward the end of his life. He's one out of 12, and the power is in the hand of the governor anyway. So anyway, it was quite an uneventful period. So at the end of his term, he asks not to be reappointed. He could get another term, but he doesn't want to be reappointed. So he lives on for another 12 years in Hong Kong. He has a quiet life. He passes away in August 1902. And then he is taken on a boat with a police sergeant and four Sikhs escorting the coffin. And he goes back to his hometown in Xiangshan. And he's buried in the ancestral grave next to his, his ancestors. So he goes home. Yes, so he goes home to where he to where he came from. I think his children and grandchildren will look back on a life very well spent. Yes, indeed, and, and quite a lot of service elsewhere, as you say, you know, helping to found the Tumwa Hospital. And it's difficult to, I think, to envisage 19th century Hong Kong, just how dire things were. If you were not fit, there was no public hospital backup, there was nothing. So if you weren't fit to do a job, you you were in dire straits often. And a lot of the Chinese who did become ill at that time weren't sometimes native to Hong Kong. They were passing through or coming here to work. Would you, would you agree? Oh, yes. Uh, I think the majority of Hong Kong people, especially in the early decades, they didn't regard Hong Kong as their home. This was a place to come and earn, to make money. Um, their families often didn't come. Their wife and children stayed in the hometown, and so they would stay here as long as they could earn and make money, and then return to the hometown in Guangdong. Now, this gradually changed over the 19th century, because, as we know, in the mainland, so many catastrophes happened, disasters, wars, and life in mainland became more and more difficult. So then more families moved to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong became their place of residence and their families came and their wives came and their children were educated here and you know they planned to stay here for a long time but I think in the first 30 to 40 years it was a very transient population and the ratio of women to men was always very out of balance so it's a sad thing to say but the prostitution business in Hong Kong has always been flourishing because there are always far too many men to a number of women now, Wang Xing himself, what do we know about his personal life? I mean, who did he marry? I think he had a rather conservative <laughs> family life. I think he only had one wife. And, of course, many wealthy Chinese at that time had a large number of wives and many, many children. What we do know about him is that he was one of the first Chinese to send his children abroad. So one son went to study at a Scottish university, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do. Can you imagine how that son was accepted by the other students at this Scottish university? I'm sure he was the only Chinese there. One became employed by HSBC, and one became a civil servant with the Registrar General. So he prepared his children well for their future. 
How is Wong Ching remembered in Hong Kong? I think not very well. Yeah. Not very well. When I consider, you know, that, that uh, the amount of streets that are named after your average bod civil servant, um, you know, I, I would imagine that Wong Ching, with his service, you'd have thought there would be something. Well, of course, many streets are named after British colonial servants. After 1997, I had thought that some of these names would be changed and these streets would be named after Chinese people, such as Mr. Wong Xing. But that hasn't happened. So the, the foreign colonial names are still there, and I don't think it's going to change. So Mr. Wong Xing is unlucky in this respect. <laughs> so when you say that he helped found Chung Hua, what was his involvement? Well, when the, the British came here in 1840, they brought with them their medical system. So there were hospitals, there were clinics, there were British doctors and the foreign residents had access to medical care such as was available to them at home. Now, this was not available for Chinese, and Chinese then had to rely on Chinese medicine. And initially, Chinese were very sceptical about Western medicine. They saw the foreign doctors with their knives, with their needles. They saw them putting patients out with anaesthetic. They saw them cutting them up and they found this very difficult to understand and they were very suspicious and there were all sorts of rumours that the, the foreigners were doing unspeakable things to, to the patients. So initially there was an, a great resistance to Western medicine. So people like Wang Xing, they played a very important role to get Hong Kong Chinese to accept that Western medicine was invaluable and it, was, it could save their lives and it could cure their illnesses. And so in this process, the Tunghua Hospital is a very important institution and look at it now. It's, it's the biggest charitable institution in Hong Kong. It has uh, hospitals, clinics, all kinds of charitable and medical institutions and it serves thousands of people every year. So. Mr. Wong Xing and others were the pioneers who persuaded Chinese to accept this. My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the life of Wong Xing. To finish up, I return to my late friend Dan Waters. Listeners enjoyed a recording of him last week, remembering his time in the 8th Army in North Africa and Italy in the Second World War. So here's a few minutes of Dan talking about the sounds he would have heard in Hong Kong when he first came here in the 1950s. When I came off the boat in mid-50s, a friend, a friend I made on the boat, he said to me, well, where have they put you? Where have they put you, the government? I said, oh, they put me in Winner House, a small hotel in North Point on King's Road. And the trams used to come past at six o'clock in the morning and they used to ring the bell, you know. They were very fond of ringing the bell in those days and then later people complained. But the bell used to ring and as far as I was concerned, I loved it. I loved that bell. And then I was in the uh, Winner House, a small hotel, for two months. And then we moved to Conduit Road and then I used to walk along there along Conduit Road. It was like a country road in those days. And I sometimes, believe it or not, I used to hear barking deer from the peak. 
men used to come round, old men used to come round, street criers, you can call them. One of one used to come round, I remember regularly, haven't seen him for years. I moved here in 1955 for six months, then we went away and then we came back. And uh, we came back again in 1976. Oh, so to Conduit Road. That's right. Back to Conduit Road in 1976. And there was this old man who used to collect scrap metal. And that was one. Another one I remember, who we used to patronise a bit, used to sharpen knives. He had a grinding machine, a hand grinder. They all called out. But then there was another man who used to sell lengths of bamboo for drying the clothes. And they used to shout out, Long Sam, Long Sam, my jock. Long Sam means hang out the clothes and my jock, buy my bamboo. But we never bought any, to be perfectly truthful, because we've always had a little metal rack. In actual fact, they used to throw up newspapers as well, up into the balconies, not here, but down below. So that you'd have newspaper selling, sellers throwing up these newspapers? They used to roll, rolled in a bundle, and there was an elastic band round, and so it was fairly small and compact, and they would throw it up, and it would go right up to the balcony. So what floor do you reckon that they could get up to doing that? Four or five, something like that. I, we don't get it here now, but I can remember at one time where we used to live, there used to be what they call dirt yuk, dirt yuk, and uh, they used to have meat on the chopping board, and they used to hit it like this. The Chinese used to hit it like this. What, with a cleaver? Yes, with a cleaver, flat. And the uh, the purpose of this was to tenderise it, tenderise the meat. The noise used to go right the way through the building. That was very common years ago. And also, of course, uh, people went but travelled by ship years ago. I mean, I came by ship when I left on my first and second leave. Uh, I went by ship. But on the other hand, there used to be parties on the ship to see people off. And there were streamers, and the band played, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and the band would be on the shore. Uh, they would hire the police band, but uh, brass band, and it was quite an elaborate ceremony. And uh, yes, a lot of old sentimental songs, such as Old Lang Syne, and things like that. <laughs> long, it was long leave in those days, of course. Because when I came, uh, you did four years. Uh, you did a tour of four years. And then, after that, uh, you had your, you had travelling time. So, I mean, uh, it would amount to about seven months leave. And then you had a month going on the ship. Because when we came out, it took uh, 31 days to come out from Southampton to Hong Kong by ship. And what would the liner have been? Would it have been a P&O? Uh, there was P&O, but you could go by uh, Italian, Lloyd Triestino, and you could go by uh, 
French boat as well, the Marseille and the Victoria. So, I mean, uh, other, other, there were other lines as well. And some people didn't like it because you had to dress for dinner every night uh, and therefore they objected. And so therefore they wanted to go by freighter. They went by freighter. So they didn't have that daily bother. That's right. Was Hong Kong quieter? Well, no. Uh, we used to walk around, for example, starting from when I was in uh, in um, Winter House. And uh, there was a general hubbub. And there's sort of a ge- always been a general bustle about Hong Kong. The late Dr Dan Waters there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>